0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church, and now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Many of us are, are probably at least passingly familiar with uh, the story of, of King Arthur, the legend of K- King Arthur. Uh, King Arthur was uh, uh, supposedly a British king from the 5th or 6th century, uh, led the people of Britain to a time of untold uh, peace, prosperity, justice in that kingdom. And of course, there's there's these intense uh, debates, historical debates on whether he actually existed or not, but the story of King Arthur has captured the imagination of people for over a millennia. And the question we can ask is is why? Why has he captured the imagination of so many people? According to legend, the tomb of King Arthur has this uh, epitaph that says, Here lies Arthur, the once and future king. I love that language, the once and future king. Arthurian legend looks back to this king a millennia ago in this short, brief reign in Britain, and this king who brought a little slice of heaven on earth in his kingdom. And there's this hope and this yearning that one day he will return to establish that kingdom once more on the face of the planet. And that theme is not unique to the story of King Arthur. It's, it's why J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is, is so popular. It's a story uh, of this restoration of this once great kingdom when their king, the true king, at long last appears and ascends to his throne and ushers in this golden age for his kingdom. The same thing could be said about Robin Hood and those legends. At their core, they are about a longing for the return of the true king. In In that example, it is Richard the Lionhearted to establish this kingdom of peace and justice once more. And why, why are these, these different legends or stories, these longings of, of kings to come and establish this kingdom of peace, why are they so popular? Especially, I mean, Tim Keller, he points out that if you look at the history of kings in, in the world, in, in, in human history, they don't have a great track record. Kings aren't exactly those who bring in peace, and this is why we see the rise of democracy. So what is it about this longing for a king? I think the Bible gives us an answer to why this longing is is so widespread. It's because each and every one of us is created with this innate longing for a king. This innate longing for a kingdom of righteousness and goodness and peace and prosperity and justice. And whether this is an unconscious longing or or a a conscious recognition, we, we see that the world is not the way that it is supposed to be. And we hope that someone will come and will make all things right once more. I love that language on King Arthur's alleged tomb the once and future king, because that phrase, I think, gets at the heart of the story of the Bible. It gets at the heart of the story of the Bible. The Bible tells us that there was once a king whose kingdom existed in perfect goodness and peace and justice. All of his kingdom lived in peace and harmony with him. And the name of his kingdom is probably one that you have heard of before. It is the kingdom of Eden, also known as the Garden of Eden. But the peace and prosperity of this kingdom, of this garden, didn't last forever. It was marred by rebellion and betrayal from those who were closest to him. Adam and Eve led all of creation in a rebellion against him. And the story of the Bible is the story of this lost kingdom and the king who is going to stop at nothing to establish his kingdom once again. That's the Bible in a nutshell. It is a story of this king's plan to bring an end to the rebellion of his creation. And it's about the unfathomable cost that he will bear so that he can bring his kingdom once more. And today as we celebrate Palm Sunday, it is a part of that story. Palm Sunday is this moment where this once and future king at long last comes to Jerusalem, the place of his throne. He's he's ascending to his throne. The king who once reigned is is now coming to to fix all of the brokenness in this world. And there's this feverish expectation surrounding this king as he is coming into his kingdom. Where those who are following him recognize that this future king in this moment is about to become king forever. Except they don't fully realize what that looks like and what that means. And shockingly, the once and future king who at long last is coming back to his kingdom is rejected by his people once more. As we look at Palm Sunday this morning, I want us to look at it through this lens. We see the the story of Palm Sunday as a story of the king who ascends to his throne. It's a story of this king who, even though he has been rejected, will come back one day and restore his kingdom Not just to its former glory, but beyond its former glory, beyond comprehension. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be in Luke's accounts of what is oftentimes called the triumphal entry this morning. Luke 19, verses 28 through 44. And as we look at this, I, I think that I just want us to consider this story in, in, in really through, through two lenses. First, I want us to, to recognize that, that this story is, is making very clear that, that Jesus is the king, but it's not just that. It also wants us to see very clearly that if we are willing to accept that claim, then it demands a response from each and every one of us that we can't stay neutral. If we conclude that the Bible is saying, yeah, you know what? The Bible is actually saying that Jesus is the king, that he is the once and future king, then we cannot remain neutral. And so as we look at this text, that's the kind of the lens that I want us to to look at it through. If... if uh, If you have a Bible, we're going to start um, in Luke 19, but before we do that, I want us to to just give a little bit of, of backgrounds to what has been taking place in Luke to this point. Luke chapter 9 tells us that Jesus is on a mission, and this is the mission that we see in Luke chapter 19. Jesus is on a mission. Luke 9, 51 says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And since that moment, 10 chapters before ours, Jesus has set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. He is dead set on going to Jerusalem. He has been moving slowly in in this concentrated focus on coming to Jerusalem. And the thing is, Jesus knows what awaits him when he gets to Jerusalem. He knows that he's going to be rejected. He knows that he is going to be put to death by the Jewish and Roman authorities. But he also knows... That this is a part of his father's plan. A part of his father's plan to bring this lost kingdom back once again. Here we see that this is a a unique passage in Luke chapter 9 that talks about the significance of what Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem. But a few verses before that, in Luke 9 verses 28 through 36, right before Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, we see this moment where Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray. And while he is praying on this mountain, in this story that's called the Transfiguration, these two figures come down, and they begin to have a discussion with Jesus, Moses and Elijah. And Luke tells us that the three of them begin to have a conversation. And this conversation is described in Luke chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. It says this, "...and behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah." who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, or literally, I want us to focus on this word, departure, literally the word exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So what Jesus is talking about with Moses and Elijah is this upcoming exodus that he is about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, this word exodus is more than just a reference to a book in the Bible. The term exodus refers to God's intervention to save people from slavery. Thousands of years before Jesus, it was to to save them from slavery to the Egyptians. And now Jesus is talking about a moment where he is going to come, or he is coming, to go to Jerusalem for a second exodus, the second moment where he is going to save people from slavery. That's what Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are talking about when they talk about his exodus in Luke chapter 9. There's this hope, this expectation that God is going to deliver people just in the exact same way that he delivered them thousands of years ago. Now he's going to do it again. He's going to deliver them from the bondage that they are finding themselves in and establish His king forever. In other words, people are longing for a second exodus, a second exodus deliverance. So here is Jesus. He's on his way to Jerusalem, this place where, according to Moses, Elijah, and himself in this conversation, where he is going to accomplish this great salvation. What's more, Jesus is arriving at Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Passover is this celebration each year for the Jewish people where they celebrate that God has saved his people in the exodus. One of the overarching themes of the Passover celebration is salvation, a celebration of salvation in the past, looking forward to a celebration of, of salvation in the future. And according to Jesus, that's about or that is exactly what he is about to do. The once and future king is coming to establish his kingdom. And that's the message that Luke makes very clear over and over and over again in this passage, that Jesus is the king. It is Jesus who comes to establish the kingdom of God. Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're leaving Jericho, and they are journeying up the mountains toward Jerusalem, and they're, they're coming with, with hundreds, thousands, maybe even tens of thousands of Jews from all over the known world are, are coming to Jerusalem for this celebration. That's where we pick up in Luke chapter 19 verse 28. And when he, Jesus, had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, the owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. So here's Jesus. He's he's venturing ever onward toward the cross and he pauses a few miles outside of Jerusalem Right outside of Bethphage and Bethany, just a couple miles from Jerusalem, he pauses in order to prepare his entrance into Jerusalem. So I want you to picture this. Streams of pilgrims are coming from every direction, from all over the world, into Jerusalem. Everyone's on foot. All of them are coming to Jerusalem. This place is swelling to 200,000 people or more over the course of this week of celebration. But as Jesus and his disciples are getting closer, they pause, and Jesus says, hey, you know what? I want two of you to go to the village that's just right up there, right down the road, and I want you to bring back the colt of a donkey for me. And these verses they begin to pull back the curtain of who Jesus is. First we see his his limitless knowledge. He knows exactly where his disciples are going to find this cult. He knows exactly how things will play out. He knows exactly what they should say to those that he is going to borrow this cult from. And it would be possible to say, well, you know what, Jesus is just a really good planner. But I don't think that's the focus here that Luke is talking about. Jesus describes himself in verse 31 in this way. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Now the Lord, this phrase the Lord can mean many different things. In verse 33, it's actually the word behind this English word owners, the owners of this cult. They are the lords of this cult. And yet what other times it can refer to, especially when it's talking about Jesus, it can refer to the fact that he is God made flesh. He is the Lord God. So the owners may be the lords of this cult, this donkey, and yet Jesus has authority over them in a greater degree. Their authority is superseded by the authority of Jesus the Lord who has authority over all. And another. This is another picture of who Jesus is in this passage. In ancient times, it was it was commonplace for kings to be able to commandeer, to conscript any sort of person or animal into their service for this temporary, short time. And that's exactly what we see from Jesus. Here he's borrowing this colt. He hasn't made arrangements for it beforehand. Jesus is declaring that he is king, and it is his right, it is his authority to be able to borrow this for his service as he approaches Jerusalem. Not only that, but the colt itself is a declaration. It's a picture of who Jesus is. Hundreds of years earlier, the prophet Zechariah he's prophesying about the one, the day when the king the king is going to come back, and it says this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All throughout these verses in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is making preparations for these final few miles into Jerusalem, and he does every single thing with intention. He wants people to pick up on the the picture that he is, the symbolism that he is using to describe who he is. He's going to enter Jerusalem in a way that fulfills all of this prophecy. So that way, anyone who's paying attention, all of these pilgrims that are coming to Jerusalem, if they look and see what Jesus is doing, they'll see he's the long-awaited king. He's the one that they've been waiting for. And so the question is, are people paying attention? Are they paying attention to who Jesus is? That's the, the question that is answered in verses 35 through 38. First, we see how his disciples respond in these verses. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. I just want to pause right there, that phrase, they set Jesus on it. Even the language that, that Luke uses to describe Jesus getting onto the donkey is Intentional. It's not that Jesus got up and sat on the donkey. It's Jesus, they set Jesus on it, just like they seated him on the throne. Jesus is the king. All right, let's keep going. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They draw near to Jerusalem. And all of Jesus' disciples, they begin to take their cloaks off and they throw them on the road in front of Jesus. This is mirroring the the, the practice that took place hundreds of years earlier when Jehu was declared king. Over the people of Israel, Second Kings chapter nine. Then in haste every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu is king. So this is a sign of, of declaration of, of who they believe Jesus to be taking their cloaks and spreading them before him. It's this common practice in that day for the Jewish people as they are journeying toward Jerusalem to sing songs as they're preparing their hearts for the Passover. And one of their favorite collection of songs to sing was from Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. This is called the Hallel. They would sing these songs on their way to Jerusalem. Everyone would sing these songs. In fact, it became a form of a greeting, especially Psalm 118. You'd see someone that you haven't seen in a year or two. You saw them a couple Passovers ago, and you meet them on the road, and you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They're saying that to their friends. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You're coming to Jerusalem. You're coming for the sake of worshiping God. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So it's not all that surprising in one sense that Jesus' disciples are saying, they're quoting from Psalm 118. They're using the common greeting of that day. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And yet, notice that that's not exactly what they say, is it? Jesus' disciples don't just say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They make an intentional change to the words of this very common song that everyone would have been singing. And when Jesus is coming, they don't say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' disciples, they are saying, you know what, Jesus isn't just another pilgrim. He is the king who is coming Jesus' disciples conclude that this psalm isn't primarily about people just making their way to Jerusalem in order to worship God. Primarily, it is about the king, the long-awaited king, the once and future king coming to Jerusalem to sit on his throne. And so they cry out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Notice what else they say. As Jesus is walking into Jerusalem, they say, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. If you're familiar with the Christmas story, this is language you're probably familiar with. You've heard words similar to these. On the night Jesus is born, the angelic choirs are filling the skies outside of Jerusalem, and they're declaring to these shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And now his disciples are saying something similar, peace in heaven. Glory in the highest. This long-awaited moment has finally come. The once and future king is entering into Jerusalem. He's about to take his throne. This is the moment where the enmity between heaven and between earth is coming to an end because the king is coming home. Peace in heaven. At long last, peace in heaven. But not everyone Responds this way. Not only are there disciples, but Luke tells us that there are others that are watching Jesus enter into Jerusalem. Final few verses of this passage tell us that not everyone acknowledges that Jesus is the king. Verse 38, excuse me, verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, "'Teacher,' Rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So here's Jesus. He's he's entering into Jerusalem, and his disciples are declaring that he is the king. And the Pharisees are standing back at a distance. They're watching silently, taking notes, observing what people are saying to Jesus. They see the symbolism. They know their Bibles really well. They hear the words. They see the claim. People are claiming that Jesus is the king. And they conclude this is blasphemy. And by Jesus allowing his disciples to say it, Jesus is on the verge of committing blasphemy himself. If Jesus is really a devout God-fearer, then he will rebuke his disciples for saying these offensive things for making these offensive actions, this offensive claim about who Jesus really is. But instead of rebuking them, Jesus reverses the tables. And instead of rebuking his disciples, he rebukes the Pharisees. He, he gives them a warning. He says, you know what? It's not my disciples who need to be rebuked. It's, it's you. In fact, if my disciples remain silent, then the rocks themselves, the stones themselves are going to cry out. I don't think it's a coincidence. Just a a week later, Jesus' disciples are cowering in fear and silence. And what is the first thing that declares the victory of the resurrection? Luke 24, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. The Pharisees are rejecting Jesus and this claim of who Jesus is. And it's that rejection that actually moves Jesus to tears. In the final few verses of this passage, he's coming into Jerusalem, and then we see that Jesus begins to weep. Verses 41 through 44. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day that the things that make for peace Just a few days later, he knows the cross is before him. He has arrived in Jerusalem as the long awaited king, but he has met with hostility, like the Pharisees. His baby, they had no room for him in the end. He now is this king who comes home, and there's no throne for him. Jesus has come, but the people, they're indifferent at best, and they're openly hostile. Opposing Jesus at worst. It's because they've rejected their king. And because of that, Jesus says Jerusalem will be destroyed. In fact, that's exactly what happens a few decades later in 70 AD. The entirety of Jerusalem is destroyed by the people of Rome. The Romans, they burn Jerusalem to the ground. That's the, and the explanation of why this takes place is given to us in verse 44 because you did not know the time of your visitation what jesus is saying is that this this hour right now god has shown up and you were not ready This word visitation used throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, to refer to when God visits his people. Sometimes he visits them in judgment. Sometimes he visits them in this incredible act of grace and mercy and salvation. In Luke chapter 1, Zechariah is is praising God. He's prophesying about what is about to take place at the person and the work of Jesus. And he says that God is visiting his people in salvation and redemption in Luke chapter 1. And Jesus says, I'm here. And you weren't ready for me. Jesus is God. He's coming into this kingly city. And the vast majority of the people that are waiting for him, they don't greet him. They don't welcome him with praise. Those that are crying out, Hosanna, as we see in the other gospels. Those who are crying out, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They're in the minority here. Luke draws attention to them, but they're, they're in the, the minority here. Jesus loves this city. He loves the people, and it moves him to tears that they have rejected him almost in mass because they were not ready for the day of their visitation. And the terrifying thing is some of them have rejected him openly. They've been hostile towards them, and most of them are just completely indifferent. They couldn't be bothered by the fact that Jesus has at long last come. And that's the story of, of Palm Sunday. The king has come, but few receive him. The king is here, but most reject him. And yet it'd be wrong for us to conclude that this is just simply an intellectual exercise proving that Jesus is making the claim that he is the king at long last. This text doesn't just demand that we think right things. It also demands a response of allegiance from each and every one of us. Notice how this passage starts. All the way back in verse 28, it says this, And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Okay, so what are these things? What has Jesus just got done saying? Palm Sunday is linked to this passage right before this, what Jesus has just got done saying to the people. So what is it that he just got done saying? Immediately before this, in verse 28, we have uh, this story that Jesus is telling to those who are in Jericho with him, verses 11 through 27. It's this made-up story. Jesus just creates it on the spot to prove his point, to illustrate what he's trying to communicate. And what is that point? Well, verse 11 tells us As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. So here's Jesus. He's in Jericho. This is right after Zacchaeus is brought into the family of God. He has just welcomed Zacchaeus, this moment of incredible salvation. And everyone's like, oh my goodness, is this the moment? Is, this, is, this, is it really happening? Is this the time that we have been waiting for at long last? Is, is the kingdom just right around the corner? And Jesus, to correct this notion, he begins to tell this story. He, he starts talking uh, about this nobleman. He says, you know what? There was this, this nobleman who uh, left his country to be appointed king. And that might seem a little bit odd to us, but it was a common practice in that day. Herod the Great, uh, Herod from Luke chapter 2, the story of Jesus' birth, actually only became king because he left his home in in Judea and went all the way to Rome and asked Caesar to be called king. So this was a common practice in that day. Back to the story. Before this nobleman leaves, he gathers together 10 of his servants. And he's talking to these servants and he gives each of them one mina apiece. It's a form of currency. A mina is about three months' salary, all right? So today, the median family income for, uh, for a, a household is about $75,000. So if that is what our, our baseline is, let's say that this is $18,000 that has been given to each of these different servants. And he entrusts the money to each and every one of these people, and he says, hey, I want you to engage in business until I get back. As I think it's really fascinating that he, he doesn't say, go and make a profit. He just says, go engage in business go engage in business. But before he leaves, or after he leaves rather, the people of the country, they gather together and they send a representative to this far country after them. He says, you know what, we don't don't actually want him to be our king. And they try to prevent him from becoming king. They hate him. The text tells us that this hate towards him is is completely unjustified. He's not a bad person. In fact, the, the fact that he's called a nobleman implies the opposite. But their bid to prevent this nobleman from becoming king is unsuccessful. He eventually comes back. And once he gets back, he, he's now the king, and he calls all of his servants to come before him, and he says, hey, I want you to, to tell me what you did with the money I gave you. And so the first one, uh, of, the fir- of the ten of them, the first one comes forward, and he says, you know what, I took that, uh, that one mina and I turned it into ten. This is an astounding rate of its return, right? This is a thousand percent rate of return. And the new king, he's impressed he says, well done. You've you've proved to me that you were trustworthy. I gave you $18,000. You were trustworthy with that. Now that I'm king, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to set you in charge of 10 cities in my kingdom. In other words, you thought your rate of return was really good. Look at what you just got from me. I am gracious and I am good. And if you can think that that was impressive, look what I just gave you with your faithfulness. Second one comes forward. He brings his one mina and says, you know what, this became five. I, I have uh, turned it into to five by engaging in business. This is another astounding rate of return, isn't it? The king is again impressed. He says, hey, you know what, you were, you were trustworthy. You, you did it. You, you were good. So, so I'm going to take that mina back, and now I'm going to let you govern five cities in the kingdom that I am now the king over. There's eight remaining servants, right, if we're doing the math. Only one more comes back. One more comes back, and that servant says, hey, look, I just hid hid your $18,000 in a handkerchief because I don't really like you. That's my reasoning. I I just don't really think you're a good person. And the king, of course, is is not impressed, and he says, hey, you know what? I I asked you guys to do business, and, and you just held on to that. You actually... Didn't even put it in the bank where I could have gotten the marginal rate of return on, on interest for it. What's more, he, he's, this, this servant is, is actually passing the blame back onto his new king. He says, you know what, it's actually your fault because you're a hard man and no one really, no one really likes you. And so the king takes away the mina and gives it to the first person. People begin to object and, and the king, he basically says, hey, don't you realize all this was a test the whole time? This was just a test the entire time. I, was, I really wanted to just see if you're going to be faithful with what I gave to you while I was gone. And that, that one over there, he proved himself faithful, so of course I'm going to give him more. That one, he proved himself unfaithful, so of course I'm going to take things away from him. But then he says something that's just absolutely astounding in the verse right before the triumphal entry. Verse 27. We started in verse 28 this morning. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. How does that have anything to do with Palm Sunday? Here's what Luke is saying. Jesus is the king. That's abundantly clear from the triumphal entry. He is the once and future king. He's coming to establish his kingdom forever, this kingdom of perfect peace. And when he arrived in Jerusalem thousands of years ago, there were two responses to him. There was the small minority crowd of his disciples who met him with joy. And then there were his enemies, those who met him with derision. But remember the reason why Jesus is telling this parable all the way back in Luke chapter 19. It's because people thought that once he got to Jerusalem, he was actually going to establish this physical kingdom. And that's not the case. The death and resurrection of Jesus, because of that, Jesus' kingdom is here, and yet it is not fully here. And just like the nobleman who left his country and went to a far country, same thing is true with Jesus today. Jesus has departed into heaven, and though he is present with us through the Holy Spirit, he is not physically present with us. And just like the king has entrusted gifts to his servants before he departed, the same thing is true for each and every one of us. Jesus has departed, but he has also given all of us, whether we think that we have all of that much talent or all these skills or, or not, he has given each and every one of us something. It's on loan from God, and it's been entrusted to you. And his expectation as he leaves is that you would engage in business, that you would, you would actually do something with this. And just like in that story, this nobleman who becomes the king, he returns one day from this far-off country to establish his kingdom. The same thing is absolutely true with Jesus, that one day he will return, and on the day of his return, he will bring everyone before him, and he will call all of us to accounts. And every single person is going to be asked about what they did with what God had entrusted to them. While Jesus was gone, the parable of the ten minas makes it very clear that there are two responses to the once and future king. You can live expectantly that the king is coming back, or you can reject him. There's no middle ground. You can be like the first two servants who may have had different levels of fruitfulness in their lives, but they were both faithful. They both took the master's word seriously and they put them into practice. And when that king returned, he found them doing exactly what he had asked them to do. And you know what? I think that mattered more to him than the Raider return. That they were actually doing what he had asked them to do. On the other hand, you have this group that rejects the future king. You can reject him like those who sent this delegation after him, trying to, to get him to be prevented from being king. You can reject him through indifference. Seven of these different servants never even showed up. They didn't have a care in the world. You could reject him through this laziness and this blame shifting of this final servant here. He wants to look the part, but he also really wants to justify his own laziness and sinfulness. And so the story of Palm Sunday, it's a warning, but it's also a promise. It's a warning because of what Jesus says will happen to those who are his enemies. Either because they are outright enemies of hostility, whether they are indifferent or whether they just, you know what, they, they, they just make all of these excuses for their lives while trying to, to look impressive. Impressive. And Jesus says, you know what, there's going to be a day when I return that you will not be ready for the day of my visitation. Just like thousands of years ago, the people of Israel and Jerusalem were not ready for the day of his first visitation. And if that is you, right now is the chance, the time to, to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, to recognize that you, like, like all of humanity, have chosen to go your own way. You've, you've rejected, we've all rejected his authority in our life. We recognize the awful cost of that rejection, and yet that it was paid on the cross by Jesus so that we could enter into his kingdom forever. To recognize that Jesus is the once and future king and that he deserves our allegiance And that he has entrusted to us time, talents, treasures, and we should not waste our lives. Because Jesus is coming back. And on that day of visitation, all of us will be asked what we did with what he has entrusted to us. It's also a promise, though. It's a promise that if you acknowledge that Jesus is the king, and if you're faithful with what he has entrusted to you, he will reward you beyond comprehension. Beyond comprehension. This life is a trial run. That's really what the parable of the minas is telling us. This life is a trial run. It's merely just a test for your eternal post. And if you are faithful now with the single mina that you have been given, Then God will entrust even greater things beyond comprehension to you in His forever kingdom. You know, if we were to sum up the message of this passage, it'd simply be this: Jesus is the King, and comes bringing joy, but also judgment. Jesus is the King, and He comes bringing joy, but also judgment on that faithful faithful Palm Sunday. Millennia ago, the arrival of Jesus caused unspeakable joy for his disciples, for those who knew who he truly was, but it also led to judgment for those who rejected him because they were just indifferent. They couldn't couldn't be bothered to care or because they were openly hostile to him. Jesus is the once and future king. The king who once reigned in Eden and the future king who will establish his everlasting kingdom of peace, hope, and goodness. And when that kingdom when that king comes, will you be ready? Will you respond with joy? Or will it be judgment? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. and the precious gift that it is. Thank you for the message of this text. Thank you for Palm Sunday, that you are the king. That you reign now and will one day forever establish your eternal kingdom here on this earth. God, I ask that you would help each and every one of us to be ready, that we would respond to your visitation like the disciples with joy. Not with indifference. Not with hostility. Not with blame shifting and excuses. But with a life of faithfulness. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.